Midvale had become confusing with mermaids and telepathic horses who had once been centaurs. While Supergirl was coming into her own, it was clear that she would have to stand out among the pantheon of heroes that came with her cousin's legacy. Hopefully, she would start to forge her own soon. Hi, my name is John. And I'm Matthew. And we are the DC Detectives. It is our job to go back through the annals of DC Comics history and chronicle the evolution of all your favorite heroes from start to every reversible finish. All right, we're continuing with Supergirl today, and I'm not happy about things. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in these that I'm not happy about. We're going to talk about each of those things in turn. As we continue on. So we're going to be doing the year of 1963 to 1964 for those who are playing along at home. Do you think it would be fair to say that if we could just carve off like the first five issues and leave the second five off or six or whatever, uh, everything would be so much more exciting and happy? Probably, yeah. Yeah. Especially those first three issues are not not half bad, you know? I I am looking forward to your recap of this because it's slightly nuts. There's a lot. There's a lot happening. Um, this, is, this is the most convoluted, I think, Supergirl comics have ever become. And then they immediately drop in quality. Uh, <laughs> so this will be a ride. Uh, and I'm sure Joanne is going to be excited. Uh, but we're going to move as quickly as possible. We're going to start Happy New Year in January 1963. Action Comics number 296. Dick Malvern thinks that Lena Luthor, uh, remember the Lex Luthor's younger sister that we found in last episode in several issues back. Um, Dick Malvern thinks that Lena Luthor is Supergirl and basically spends an entire issue dating her to see if that's true. And at the end of the issue, um, Lena claims that she is, in fact, Supergirl. And Supergirl is actually mildly pissed off about this, that Lena hasn't just said, no, I'm not Supergirl, but she seems to just lean into this and is now continually dating Dick Malvern, who, of course, is Linda Lee, Supergirl's uh, secret identity's uh, on-again, off-again boyfriend, guy that she dates occasionally. Who cares? Assumed flame? Yeah, a a beau that she sees. Um, In Action Comics number 297, February 1963... We kind of recap that Lena has admitted that she is Supergirl, and we find out why. It's because Lesla Lar, the Kandorian criminal scientist from several Supergirl issues back, if you want, go to our Supergirl uh, playlist on SoundCloud, and you'll find it in one of the three or four episodes that we have in there. Lesla Lar is a Kandorian evil scientist who looks exactly like Supergirl who traded places with Supergirl occasionally in the bottle city of Kandor. Um, Les Lar is manipulating the brain of Lena Luthor to claim that she is Supergirl so that Supergirl gets pissed off, goes away, and Les Lar can switch places with Lena Luthor, pretend that she's Lena Luthor, and then have superpowers reveal that she is Les Lar, and then fight Supergirl. When she does this, her big grand plan is to release prisoners from the Phantom Zone to give her help, which is not a bad idea because the Kryptonian superfamily seems to be pretty well equipped to handle one bad guy per issue. So she decides to up the ante and release three Kryptonian prisoners from the Phantom Zone. These are... Jax or J-A-X hyphen U-R, Crew hyphen L, 
Cruel, and Zod. I had to look to make sure that this was not the first appearance of General Zod that we see in comics. It is not. Okay. The first good. appearance of General Zod is in a Superboy issue that we haven't covered because we just haven't been covering Superboy comics because we have to not cover Superman at some point. Otherwise, we'd be just doing too much fucking Superman stuff and it'd be insane. Um, so Zod first appears, General Zod, who is a big, massive bad guy in the Superman lore, for those who are not initiated into the Superman mythos. Um, is a he's a big bad guy and it's a big deal and he first shows up as a bad guy for Superboy Les Lar releases him and two other criminals and she's like alright guys it's great now we're just going to beat up Supergirl and they're like here's a thought what if we make a, a shield around Earth that protects it from time and space invasion and she's like what does that do and they're like well Superman is in the future so he can't come back to Earth and the Legion of Superheroes are in the future, and they can't come to Earth. And no one from another planet can come to Earth to help Supergirl, so she's effectively trapped here. And they're, and she's like, that's a great idea, why didn't I think of that? And they're like, we're also evil geniuses, it's fine, it happens. Um, so, in this, they, they make the shield, no one can come help Supergirl, and then the Kryptonian bad guys all find these, this stash of Kryptonian weapons that are forbidden, that were just on Earth, because reasons. Um... And they're like, this is a disintegrator ray. This is a thing that like was banned on Krypton. Watch how it works. And they straight up kill Les Lilar. It's I'm not even kidding. I thought that was a joke or mm-hmm. some kind of weird accident. They're like, hey, now we don't have to work with this chick. And they just shoot her with the disintegrator ray to make sure it works. And they kill her. I, I think it's even a step better because it's okay, we should test it on a super being to make sure it works. And they just rush, they uh, draw straws, and she draws the short straw, and this character who has been the driving source of action for this entire comic is suddenly just gone. And she has not come back. (laughs) No, she's dead. She is dead, dead. And uh, now they're like, great, perfect. Supergirl, hey, guess what? The three of us just escaped from the Phantom Zone. Uh, you're screwed. And she's like, well, not if I can stop you. And then one of them shoots her with a plant scourge. They infect her with some sort of disease that turns animals or living creatures into plants. Uh-oh. And that's the end of that issue. Action Comics number 298, March 1963. Supergirl now distraught that she can't really do anything and she can't get help turns to the smartest man on the planet that she knows lex luther and asks lex luther for help because he's the only other person who has given kryptonians a run for their money she claims that these guys have uh put lena in danger and the second she says that he's like oh why didn't you say so of course i will help you they've they've hurt my kid sister when he finds out that lena is just trapped in candor he's like well screw this he uses some of the Kryptonian technology to give himself superpowers and immediately joins the enemies from the Phantom Zone. While he's fighting with these guys uh, alongside them now, they try to steal Supergirl's powers with gold kryptonite. This gold kryptonite removes a Kryptonian's powers uh, on Earth. Um, he overhears that they're going to double-cross him, so he and Supergirl devise a plan to triple-cross them, and then they put them away... They remove the shield from the planet. Superman shows up and everybody gets put back into the Phantom Zone. And uh, Luthor, who was near Gold Kryptonite, now loses his powers. And he goes back to jail. 
That is the first time, first of all, that we have seen a three-part storyline over three issues. Secondly, someone else again saved the day and not Supergirl in her own book. Huh. Luthor had to come in and and fix it. it. And she like she didn't outsmart them herself. She had to have help. At the very least, it was a combined plan between the two of them. But yeah, I kind of got the impression that it was Luther who came up with most of that plan. I, You're right. Yeah, it really wasn't her driving that. Hmm. We're, and also, is this the first woman bad guy we've seen? And she's dead now? Star Sapphire? Well, actually, did Wonder Woman even have female villains in the Silver Age, or was that just Golden Age? We we did not get to Cheetah in the Golden Age, but she was in the Golden Age. And she did have Dr. Poison, who was a woman, and yeah, she did have the like, Baroness. Yeah, but Silver Age Wonder Woman did... But since then... Huh. I don't think so. Huh. If nothing else, the fact that we can't think of any says a lot... <laughs> You know, and, and we're only to, reading a lot of comics. <laughs> and, and to Supergirl's credit, we're going to get a female villain reasonably quickly again. However, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. And also, I gotta say, huh. I gotta say, the bit that every blonde chick in Midvale looks exactly like Supergirl <laughs> is getting real old real fast. Fair. Not to mention that, like, Les Lalar, who lives on Kandor, apparently looks passably like Supergirl. Is everyone in Midvale and Metropolis face blind? They have to have something different about their faces in some way that makes them just a little, like... Les Lalar has to have an accent. Huh. You know? Because mm-hmm. she's Kandorian. She's got to have some dialect affectation... That she's got to like talk through that won't make her that won't make her her speech perfect. We're gonna see a lot of a character can easily be an imposter, and oh actually, I guess so. Dumb. When is uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Um, okay, so Invasion of the Body Snatchers was nineteen fifty six. So, I not like super recent by this time, this is after. but. It, I, I wonder if there's just kind yeah. of a, if that's just kind of a trope that people have latched onto or what. But certainly we do get a lot of those mistaken identity stories. Mistaken isn't even the right word. Uh, false identity. Imposters. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to move on to now Action Comics number 299, April 1963. Um, three actors from Candor. Who are trying to get a part in a reenactment play who get panned by both Supergirl and Superman because they're acting as subpar decide to go to Earth and pretend to be Super Baby, the baby version of Superman, and the Kents and reenact Superman's baby infant life in real time in front of Supergirl so that she will see that they're good actors. And she kind of agrees, and then they get the part in the play, and that's it. It's very strange. It's a very strange story that goes absolutely nowhere. Yeah, we're we're back to uh, 
situation of the week stories. Hijinks. Y- yes. Uh, there it is. Action Comics number 300, May 1963. Through a series of shenanigans, Comet gets his memory back. It's really all I want to talk about with that issue. It, you know, Comet, who had previously lost his memory while eating the lotus blossoms in South Africa, while on set for a movie about him, where he was his own stunt double for a film, lost his memory, and now is slowly getting it back. And that's the end of the story as he hooks back up with Supergirl and they're, they're a team again. That's an interesting choice of words right there. Oh, we're going to... No, I was on purpose. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Action Comics number 301, immediately following the story, June 1963. Comet and Supergirl foil a conspiracy to overthrow the King of Wizards on a planet full of magicians and mages where all of Earth's mythological creatures exist, and in doing so, Comet gets a boon from the King, Prince, Wizard, whatever his title is, and his boon is that he wishes to be human, but he asks for this when Supergirl isn't around, and he gets turned into a human, and the Wizard's like, yeah, this is only going to last for like a little bit, so I guess live it up, bud. You've got two legs now. And Comet saves Supergirl from another plot. She doesn't know who he is because he looks like the upper half of his centaur body, which she has never seen. And then he returns to a horse. And we find out that the rules for this are every time he gets near a comet, he turns into a dude. And then it wears off eventually. So buckle up, because that ain't going away anytime soon. So when he returns to Earth, he comes back, and he's a... He's a... He's a person. And he can't tell Supergirl for some reason. So he works at a, at a rodeo. As a Bronco Buster. Until the spell wears off. And Supergirl goes to the rodeo, trying to find Comet. And and he saves her from a horse, and they kiss. And then hours later, he turns back into a horse and doesn't tell her that he turned into a man at any point in that time period where she was looking for him, and we don't talk about it. And that's the end of the issue. So, a couple things. That's weird and dumb. Two, how often do comets pass by Earth that this is going to be a thing for you? And three, why don't you tell her that you can turn into a man now? What do you get out of not telling her that you're a man now? Are you embarrassed? Who knows? There really isn't We'll get to the kissing later. I have more kissing to talk about. Yeah. There really isn't any justification (sighs) given for why that needs to be a secret identity thing um and it might in fact be like the only instance of dramatic irony that this entire thing uses this entire uh yeah supergirl world has uh we're gonna move on to action comics number 302 july 1963 
an Atlantean criminal tries to use Comet to beat Supergirl, but is foiled when he turns when Comet turns into a man. So the Atlantean criminal is using a thought projector ray that will take over creatures. And he's trying to take over Comet using the Thought Projector Ray. And then when a Comet passes by Earth, Comet turns into a dude. And the Atlantean guy is like, wait a minute, where's that horse I was messing with? This is just a dude. Fuck this stuff. And then the Supergirl finds him and throws him back into Atlantean jail. There you go. That's the only time him turning into a dude was ever useful. I do want to call out one one dumb little thing uh, that I found entertaining. Uh, the Atlantean scientist has a picture of Luther hanging on his wall because he is so determined to prove that he is the better uh, evil scientist. Like, it's it's a, it's a shonen anime thing of, I am going to be better than you, and I am going to uh, snuggle your picture to sleep as I vow vengeance upon you. It's, it's the uh, Kate Beaton uh, Ahab comic. Yeah, or like um, Mirror Master try- reading the prison newspaper and finding out he's number four. Yes, one like, I have to break out to be number one again. Stupid. <laughs> Extra Comics, number 303, August 1963. A soldier from the Korean War who knew the Danvers' son, the Danvers being Kara Zor-El or Linda Lee's adopted parents now, this soldier from the Korean War who knew the Danvers' son pretends to be their son to get a free family and blackmail Supergirl by telling her his real identity and saying if you tell the Danvers they're going to be super pissed off that their son's really dead and they're going to be mad at you and she's like well shit you're probably right so he blackmails Supergirl into getting powers and eventually feels bad about having powers and stealing sunken treasure which Superman does all the time I don't know why it was a problem (laughs) um but when Supergirl gets hurt by kryptonite that they find underwater, he swims her all the way back up with his temporary powers and in doing so gets the bends and just dies immediately. And she buries him at sea and chooses to not tell her parents that that wasn't actually their son. There's a moment when he meets Supergirl and he's pretending to be the son of the Danvers. And he he kisses Supergirl? Not an A fraternal familial kiss on the cheek kiss on the head hug whatever he full-on like romance cover kisses her and no one says anything they do say things and it's none of it is disapproving i i have a screenshot of the panel because it just hurts uh he says something to the effect of like i have something for you and then the next line is this kiss and the dad says, ha ha, look at her blush. And her thought bubble is, hmm, for a second there, I nearly forgot I was his foster sister. Like every, mm, I'm actually going to, I'm going to tangent on this a little bit because I want to talk about this. There at any point where Kara slash Linda can be, sexualized isn't quite the right word, but portrayed as uh marriage material is putting it too lightly but of a marriageable age and a as a as a marriage target as a romance target i guess is a way to put it uh yep everything about the writing does that the other thing that hit me on this one so specifically the kiss that bronco bill quote unquote slash comets human form uh and supergirl share it's 
they are crowned the king and queen of the uh, of the rodeo, and they they kiss for the cameras, which to me says these people, like the photographers, are saying, "Hey, like let's get a shot of you kissing." Like they are posing them in that way, despite seeing Supergirl's age. Like soup, and it's it's not a like Sailor Moon situation where there it is where the transformed form is a meant to be a come came of age kind of metaphor is maybe a strong word. The Supergirl still looks young. Linda Lee looks younger, but Supergirl still looks like sixteen, seventeen, and they are posing She's... her to kiss with this clearly adult. And the, her parents are doing the same thing in this other scene. She is Supergirl, not Superwoman. Yep. There's a difference. And I know I know, comics have had a problem with <laughs> calling the female equivalent a girl, a la Hawk Girl, even though Shaira is a full-grown adult by Thanagarian standards and human standards, as far as we know. But she's a girl. She's a teenager. I want to say 16 at best. This is not the worst one that we see. There's one more that I think is quite possibly the worst due to the implications of it. Yeah. <laughs> Action Comics number 304, September 1963. Zora, a friend of Les Lars. You know, when you're a criminal on Candor and you go to those girl clubs where you have other criminal friends. Um Attempts to get revenge on Supergirl for her friend's death by pretending to be Supergirl's criminal descendant from the future, the Black Flame. This I actually kind of enjoyed. I thought this was kind of a clever little thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's not great, but it's just different and fun. Um, Supergirl goes to the future to try and figure out what's going on with the Black Flame in the future. And she's like, wait a minute, that isn't even my descendant. And they're like, ha, we tricked you. Um, and Zora uh, attempts to open the Phantom Zone again and Supergirl returns and, and defeats her uh action comics number 305 october 1963 supergirl makes karen blair just another girl in midvale uh she makes karen blair like her by proving that she supergirl was not the cause of her father of karen blair's father's death that's the whole issue is karen blair thinks that on the night supergirl crashed on earth um her father's observatory was struck by a mysterious force and it killed him and maimed her brother. And Supergirl, rather than, this was funny, my girlfriend said this, rather than show her landing in a field away from everyone, she specifically shows Karen the death of her father. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's clearly traumatizing. Oh, yeah. So that was cool. And the entire issue is just clearing Supergirl's name and giving her edification that she is cool. It's even less than that, I think, because that almost implies like there's a process to clearing her name. It really it really felt like here are like three instances of uh, Karen showing that she doesn't like Supergirl. And then it's Karen explains it. And then Linda takes her to the Fortress of Solitude and they look through a device and they see it as it actually happened. It's such a bland story. It There's nothing to it. There's nothing... There's nothing surprising except for the bit that's just like, well, okay, it turns out the thing that the guy saw was this space monster that had never been introduced. That's the thing is like, 
All yeah. of the other stories in here at least felt like, okay, they were pretty grounded. Like, I can see they sort of laid the groundwork for, and here's the twist or the thing that leads to the solution. This was just like, I don't know, uh, Space MacGuffin. MacGuffin's yeah, the wrong word, it but was a, it McMonster. Was Space Deus Ex. Um, Action Comics number 306, November 1963. We're almost done, folks. Supergirl fights shape changers who convince her that she's accidentally killing all of her super friends like Crypto and Streaky. Um, And once they have convinced her that she is dangerous and she leaves the planet, they try and take over the world. However, she figures it out when they make Comet speak in horse form instead of speak telepathy or speak with telepathy. And she realizes something is wrong. And then she returns gets the bad guys, takes them back to their planet, and she says, hey, stop being bad. And they're like, all right, sorry. And the UN's like, good job, Supergirl. You have made peaceful uh, peace treaties with us and other planets. I just thought that was hilarious. The UN was like, thanks, Supergirl. And I'm like, oh, good, we're looking at the UN. Um, here's the here's the worst offender, in my opinion. Yep. Action Comics number 307, December 1963. A Phantom Zone prisoner escapes, and in an effort to free the rest of his Phantom Zone friends and or defeat the House of L, his plan is to romance Supergirl to get close to her so that he has the ability to get into the Fortress of Solitude to get the things that he needs. His plan to romance her is to pretend to be her high school chemistry teacher and to slowly reveal to her that he has superpowers and in doing so will then tell her that he's from that he's from Argo City the city that Supergirl grew up in and that they have a connection and he knows her very well now it is also stated that this villain is incredibly intelligent and also super handsome so Supergirl falls in love with this man who is old enough to be mistaken for her teacher, brings him home to her parents. Her parents immediately take to this guy because he seems so genuinely nice. And Supergirl begins to date this man who again, apparently is old enough to be perceived to be a teacher. They start to become physically intimate, not sexually that we see, but at least kissing. And eventually he proposes to Supergirl. Meanwhile, Jero, Lori Lamaris, and Comet, who have all tried to telepathically communicate with this guy, have not been able to, and they all raise red flags that they cannot read into his mind. On the day of their wedding, when they are about to exchange their final vows, the bad guy says, I refuse to marry. Uh, he's like, I refuse to, to take you forever, but now that we are married... I have ruined your reputation, Supergirl, because now you are married to a criminal and Superman's reputation is now tarnished because Kryptonians don't believe in divorce. Surprise! It's not Supergirl. It's Saturn Girl from the Legion of Superheroes as she pulls off her blonde wig to reveal blonde hair, because, of course. <laughs> and I guess Saturn Girl also looks like Kara? Sure. And Saturn Girl presses a button that sends the bad guy into the future, where he is then captured by the Legion of Superheroes and put in a Kryptonian prison. Saturn Girl then reveals to Mrs. Danvers that Supergirl and her, and her came up with this plan when Comet 
Lori Lamaris and Jero contacted her from the past and asked her to come to our time to try and read this guy's mind because she's the greatest telepath in the universe. And when she did, she found out his plans, told Supergirl, and they hatched the plan to double-cross him. If you didn't follow that, that's okay. The key thing to remember from the story is an adult man attempted to marry a teenager to get stuff from her. And not a single person had a problem with that. No one's problem was that he was too old for her. Their problem was that they couldn't read his mind. Yep. So that is the end of our coverage from the, the year 1963 for Supergirl. This is the thing that I had the problem with. I already, I already made jokes about the fact that apparently three blonde women all look like Supergirl. Lena Luthor, Saturn Girl... And Les Lalar apparently are all spitting images for Supergirl that they can impersonate her or be perceived to be her in a secret identity at any moment. That's dumb. Comet, a centuries, if not millennia old, being. Now, it is stated, having a crush on Supergirl is weird. The, the guy from the Korean War has to be no younger than 18 making out with his fake adopted sister was also not weird and seen as a gag making out's a strong term but he was romance cover kissing her and it was believed to be a gag by his biological quote unquote family a kryptonian prisoner who was an adult on Krypton and is drawn as an adult and not drawn the same height as her like Dick Malvern or Jero is, attempts to marry her and becomes sexually intimate with her or physically intimate with her to seal this de deception is also not a red flag. So we talked last episode about the Wolverine-Kitty Pride dynamic, about how it's possible that Wolverine and Kitty Pride a young girl and a centuries-old man were supposed to be a couple in X-Men comics. Here's why the Comet thing is not as problematic to me. When you have a character who is, for lack of a better term, immortal, every single person that they meet from that point on is too young for them. So at a certain point, we have to decide, is age the determining factor with who they can be really who they can be involved with or the legal age of consent i'm inclined to say the legal age of consent because if if they're if the thing that is determining whether or not they can be involved with someone is they have to find another immortal that's kind of not fair to them because no one is going to have shared life experience with them ever if they've been alive since ancient greece however him being somewhat romantically interested in Supergirl isn't okay because she is below the age of consent and he is not anywhere close to her age and also it's forced and dumb and stupid when she's got Jero and Dick Malvern who are the same age as her who are both delightfully polite to her and just smitten 
and in a very like both of them are better than Reno, the mermaid boyfriend, <laughs> in every way. Mm-hmm. Except Dick Malvern, when he thinks that Lena Luthor is one hundred percent Supergirl in disguise, totally drops Linda Lee to try and figure out if Lena is Supergirl when it's obvious he's trying to figure out who Supergirl is. And Jero is, you know, in love with Kara, which is nice. And he's just, you know, an aw shucks kind of a guy that they have as a foil um, so that there is some romantic tension. When you have two perfectly good, reasonably acceptable options for her character, one for her secret identity and one for her super identity, what is the point of the horse? Which is a phrase... I didn't think I'd ever say. <laughs> That's my problem with Comet. The other two are clear, blatant, predatory situations. And that's not okay. And those should not be okay. Because they're both based on deception by men who are older than her. And that's not okay. Again, I feel like the immortal thing is a little bit harder to make an argument for. It's just weird. Unless you write it, I don't know, unless you write it like the immortal from Invincible, who has had multiple wives over the course of his immortal life and loves them all equally. And it's not written as weird. It's just like, well, my first wife died, etc. And then like uh, several decades later, I, I mourned and then I met another woman and I lived with her and, you know, and we got married. It's like that when it's when it's presented in that way it's less problematic and it's a little bit more understandable. And like, yeah, I mean, if you're immortal, you're, you're never going to, you know, have that relationship mm-hmm. when it's a, if again, if it is of an age of consent, the issue with the Kitty pride Wolverine thing is he's a mentor. She's a student. She's 14. He's 200. That's weird. We're Kitty pride 30. Yeah. I don't think we'd have a problem with it, but that's, I think yeah. that's when we draw that, just that that line of of demarcation as to what is an acceptable relationship with a fictional immortal character and a younger character. So Comet is the least awful offender in this trio of terrible. Biff, the the fake stepbrother and the bad Kryptonian are the worst. And that is the big takeaway from these. It's a little bit interesting because for me the not necessarily the worst offender but the one that rankles me the most is Comet. And that's specifically because Comet is a recurring character and one we are meant to be empathetic towards. Not just empathetic towards, but believe is a good guy. And both those things make it harder for me to just like, I I guess for me, it it's so easy to just kind of be like, well, those two stories where those two characters came up just that scrub them we realize the error of our ways that's not canon it's harder to do that with a character who is recurring and one who is a good guy but in terms of what is like the the worst like act if it were real what what is the worst situation yes absolutely he is the least bad i think you're right comet having the most access to her due to his being a sidekick makes it weird er and him being around more is problematic we'll see how bad it gets mm-hmm. based off of how much screen time he gets if it continues to be if he starts competing for her like Jero and Dick Malvern yeah. do then we have a problem if it's just a I love you from afar it's like you're creepy and that's weird don't do that but if he actively pursues her in his human form 
then we're, then I'm going to be like, this is problematic. Yeah. I, and I feel like we've already um, gotten a little bit of that, but it hasn't leaned into it super hard yet. He has not used his human form to try and date her. Yeah. The second he tries to do that, I will 100 percent be uh, have a have a th- have a 180 on my opinion of it. The other thing that <laughs> the other thing that's just a little bit rough. Uh, so the cousin or the older brother, uh, the thing that's a little rough there is he was thought dead in 1951. So 12 years before this comic happened. So he was probably 30 or more. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's some problems oh. with all of that. Yeah. And the, I, I, we were actually, I was actually listening to, uh, one of the Jay and Miles, uh, Hawk casts, uh, they, so they're doing like a three, three weeks, uh, doing one comic, one comic, one comic. And then a fourth week that was originally going to be like an off week. And then COVID happened there and people were like, Hey, can you just, just something in our feed would be nice. It would help us feel a little more normal. So they do sort of off the cuff podcasts. And one of them was, uh, like talk about formative novel series. And I think it was Jay talking about, uh, the dragon riders of Pern series. And like, I read a couple of those books, uh, but didn't get super deep. And Jay pointed out, yeah, like you go deep enough into any of Anne McCaffrey's stuff and the female protagonist always hooks up with the father figure. And it's just like at a certain point, you stop having good faith in the writer or the editor uh, that maybe maybe this is just you exploring something that you probably shouldn't be exploring in public and you should really be thinking deeply about in general. And that's that's the other thing that gets me a little bit is the first the first issue that had issues like this was actually a, a Jerry Siegel story. And since then we switched over to God, what's his name? Uh, it's uh, Leo Dorfman is the writer. Uh, so I don't know whether I, like my guess is it's honestly it's probably something that comes from Mort Weisinger because he's the editor continuous across those. Maybe maybe that was just something that the higher ups decided is. This is just part of the character of Supergirl is she is older guy attractive. Yeah, it's it's not great, folks. Yep. It's not a great time to be a Supergirl fan. One of one or two things that I did notice in, in these these issues, she does get a little bit more agency to solve the problems herself. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of nice. She is saving the day more often than she was in the in the last year we read. She is still, however, suffering from young girl doesn't know how to do the job syndrome that the that the male writers are doing, which bothers me because again, Wally West never has this issue. Wally West is never suffering from being too inexperienced. And I just feel like it's unfair that they are treating Supergirl in a way that suggests she might not have a handle on things for whatever reason it is. Other than to give her conflict. Not a fan. Um, 
Also, there was a mention of Cartier in these. Cartier, the jewelry oh, yeah. company. In, uh, which I thought was interesting because that was the first time we've seen, in my, in, to my knowledge, a name brand that actually exists in the real world in a comic. Huh. Huh. To give scope for how expensive the jewelry was that was being stolen in the issue. I just thought that was interesting. Also, one of the trucks that gets overturned in a Comet-centric issue is an Acme truck, which I just like. Um, but a lot of a lot of unfortunate plot situations that happened here revolving around age and Supergirl's apparent ability to engage in romantic interactions with someone who is older than her. I don't know how much more you have as far as notes go because we have covered quite a lot. But if you have more, I've got a little bit. Uh, I sat down and read the first three issues in a block and then went away and had other stuff. And then when so I had some time where I was legitimately just focused on those first three issues and they were the only thing that's bouncing around my head. And there was none of the age stuff. There was none of the creepy romance stuff so i got some time where i was just sitting with the first three issues and i fucking loved that shit it was messy but it was it was i think that these stories and kind of these stories in general are the apotheosis of the let's keep drawing from the pool of that we've world built uh and even even to the degree that you get kind of the uh, the kind of cinema sins, uh, why didn't they ask this other character? Uh, like that whole thing of well, why why didn't why doesn't Spider Man call in the Avengers? Why why is anyone tackling this thing alone when they have other people that they could call? Why is this a street level problem that Moon Knight is taking care of instead of well, he knows the big guns and this is a threat that's clearly outside of his scope. Why doesn't he call them in? Like these stories tackle that almost almost to the point where you feel like they're trying to make a point of doing that. Uh, mm-hmm. for instance, there are, uh, I, with the, uh, the boyfriend who turns out to, or the, the guy who is the, uh, not Kandorian, but Phantom Zone, uh, villain, like he threatens and the Kandorians into silence. So otherwise they would be they're watching everything they would reach out and tell supergirl yeah. there are times where uh i think one of the uh, when she discovers the three phantom zone uh people who got broken out by i don't remember her name uh and it's be, the reason that supergirl knows to go take a look and oh shit this is going on is because a test demolition that they did uh disturbed atlantis and so Supergirl comes over, helps Atlantis, and then, oh, this other thing is going on at the same time. Uh, there's such a... It draws a clear line of what kinds of things are in its world. There's the time travel, there's Kandor, there's uh, Atlantis, and that's kind of where it's... in the Phantom Zone, and that's kind of where it ends. It doesn't go into Metropolis, it doesn't go into... 
the Justice League. But within that circle, it is devoted to pulling as many of its threats and solutions and supports and flavor from that. And the bit that especially hit me was it's not just doing that at the start. It's not saying this is the sandbox that we're playing in and the inciting incident has some piece of world built continuity it is having those like second second intent second action things be pulled from there uh so it feels a a lot of the things feel like they're being grounded more even if it's just like well this thing came out of nowhere but it didn't come out of nowhere it's the kandorians coming out of nowhere but they're the kandorians so it's not out of nowhere uh and just the sheer amount of threads in the first three issues that we covered that three three part arc it's such a mess there's so much going on but the fact that it is just trying to pull in every single piece that can go on just oh it it, it made me deeply happy uh and i was i i wondered if we'd get more of that and we didn't quite get that cuz it wasn't a concrete like it didn't build itself as a clear story arc. It wound up being that, but it didn't have the the beats such that you'd be like, okay, I know this is a three-part story. It just kind of went, and then part three happened. It's like, oh, and that's tying up everything neatly. I thought we might keep getting that kind of messy, the, the status quo keeps being updated as we go, but but we didn't but we still had that same devotion to world building or pulling from the world i guess rather yeah something that i just remembered um was also we got a lot of reiteration of backstories in one year supergirl's backstory i think got reiterated three times and comet's backstory got reiterated twice and I just thought that was strange. I I have it in my notes that I, I just remembered to bring it up. It was it was very weird to see that happen so often and so quickly. Um, and it was like an issue or a two apart when that would happen. So it was like, did you think everyone forgot? Like, it wasn't like you did this last year. You did this this year, two issues ago. It feels like they haven't gotten their feet or more accurately figured out the paradigm of how to catch people up. That was something that especially stood out in the first three issues. Like the second and third issues, like they would, the Supergirl stories in them would start off with a bit of a recap, but it wouldn't, like, I think the second issue specifically, it stood out because it was a mix of what had happened before, some additional flavor. Like, I think it was specifically the Atlanteans or the Kandorians or someone like watching. And that information was going to be helpful later on. It, it was establishing something. So it it was new stuff as well. Uh, but it was also like just straight up like two and a half pages all told. Like first page is mostly splash page. But then you get like another full two pages before it gets into. And here's the new stuff that really happens. Uh, it, in a comic that's what, I guess 12 pages for Supergirl stuff. That's a lot. It didn't feel like they had figured out how to catch people up either succinctly or just do the modern thing of assume they know the majority and just do the briefest little thing. Yeah. But yeah, I think that about does it on my end. All right. Do you want to start with recommendations? Yeah. Let's see. 
I don't think I've made this recommendation before. Uh, so we watched Avatar: The Last Airbender when it came out, uh, or when it when it came back to came to Netflix recently, and about a month or so later, Legend of Korra came out as well. And I had already watched all the way through it, but it had been a long while. And Rebecca had seen the first three and a half or first two and a half seasons. Uh, So it was, all right, let's sit down and go through. And I am happy to say that it holds up really well, especially like for me, I, I had strong feelings about the third and fourth season being exceptionally good. Uh, that being said, I also binge watched those seasons over a two night period after working, like just sitting and watching until like 3 a.m., go home, come back, work a full day, then stay up watching uh, until 3 a.m. because it was during uh, shortly before Christmas time. So, oh, well, <laughs> but yeah, that it is a good series. If you enjoy Avatar The Last Airbender, definitely watch it. Don't expect it to be the same. Uh, it is at its worst when it tries to be the same, uh, but go in and enjoy it. Season two is rough. Yeah. Oh yeah. The first, first season is a little uneven, but still solid. Just a little predictable season two. It's like, uh, I see where you're going and that's kind of interesting, but it doesn't hit like four episodes into season three. It gets better. I just finished season two and I had never watched seasons three and four. So I was like, I don't know if I want to keep watching this. And so far, season three has kept me watching it. Season three, like, it just feels like the writing's just flat out better. Yeah, it does definitely feel more, uh, better paced, deeper, without trying to be um, expansive, which is hard to mm-hmm. do. It's it's the difference between making a really big pool and making a deep pool. A bigger pool allows you to do more stuff. A deeper pool only lets you do something within the space provided, and it makes that space dangerous because only you can only go down. And season three seems to be a much larger pool, and it seems to be working for them. Um, I will recommend since I, I recently submitted to the the Mad Cave Talent Search, um, and I had to read a bunch of their um, comics to you know familiarize myself with their line so that I could submit something for them. Um, I recently read Show's End by Mad Cave Comics, and it was actually pretty good. I think it was my favorite thing that I read from them. Um, Actually, uh, I'll recommend another comic after this, also by Mad Cave. Um, It's only got six issues. It's one volume so far, and it was fun. It was like, if they don't do any more, it doesn't need to be. If they decide to do more, I'd be interested to see where it goes. Um, But it was a succinct six-issue volume, and you rarely see that. And it was good, and it was interesting, and it was not a superhero book, which is, you know, outside my normal fare, and it was fun and kind of noir and gothic and about circus uh, performers and magic, and it was cool. And I, I would suggest checking it out. So it's, it's called Show's End by Mad Cave. And then the second Mad Cave comic I will uh, recommend is uh, Over the Ropes, which is another Mad Cave title, and it is a wrestling comic, and it is fun if you know your wrestling history. But it is also just well written, and uh, I recently picked up uh, a couple of years ago, um, Ringside by Image, and I hate comparing two different things that are the same genre. Over the Ropes is better. Ringside is trying to do something different. I think it's it, it felt like it was doing a noir story 
that had wrestlers in it. Over the Ropes is what if the wrestling storylines were real and a narrative dealing with a wrestler's life in a company and the ups and downs that happened to him that are only that could only be described as wrestling plot points but taken very seriously. So I I think it's fun and unique and uh it, I like the art a lot. The art is really solid. Um the te- the whole team on it does a very good job. And like I said, if you know your hit, your wrestling history, at least if you know WWE and also some external companies like New Japan Pro Wrestling or Lucha Underground or so, or stuff like that, um you might see a lot of references or uh gimmicks that are mocking or satirizing real life wrestling stuff and it might be just a fun easter egg hunt if you are a wrestling fan even in a cursory way to see who they are like oh that's supposed to be that character oh that's supposed to be that character oh that guy's okay that guy's supposed to be like you know mick foley got it okay and then you can kind of guess an archetype i guess the equivalent would be playing uh playing um uh fire emblem seeing a character and knowing their archetype and assume and now knowing everything you will need to know about that character because of the archetype. If you know that for wrestling, you'd be like, I know that that guy's a face. I know that that guy's supposed to be that guy in the real wrestling world, so he's going to have this type of an arc. Or they will completely supplant that and do something different, and it will be unique to you, which would be great. Um, so that's fun. I got the first volume of that as well from Mad Cave, and it was just a fun read, and I actually really enjoyed doing that. So good job, both teams for show's end and over the ropes nice so that's going to do it for us for our supergirl coverage for 1962 to 1964 how we got to deal with superman and then we deal wonder woman and then we go back to justice league then we get to move that needle from 1964 to 1966 and in that time period a lot of new lines open up. You know, like Teen Titans and Doom Patrol. That's going to be fun. We get to actually do Teen Titans. I'm excited. Um, so we're going to have some new stuff in a f- several episodes, probably three or four. Um, but I'm excited. Superman might be a bit of a slog, but it's Superman comics. We always at least enjoy poking fun at him. And uh, we will see you all next time. DC Detectives can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. To stay in the know, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The interactions Kara had in these stories made us uncomfortable. And we didn't know how to deal with the inappropriate connections she had suddenly made. Fortunately... She had begun to show more agency and solved many more capers herself. But it was time for us to move on. It was time to head back to Metropolis.